Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. I could have a mansion on a hill. I could lease a villa in Seville, but it wouldn't be as nice as a summer in Ohio with a gay midget named Carl playing Tevya and Porgy. Wander Paris after dark, take a carriage ride through Central Park, but it wouldn't be as nice as a summer in Ohio, where I'm sharing a room with a former stripper and her snake, Wayne. Well, there are a lot of people spending summer in Ohio, not necessarily, you know, I mean, some of them against their own will and some of them by choice, I guess. But that is uh, a wonderful Jason Robert Brown song that begins our coverage of the convention today. I want to just begin by saying somebody that I feel sorry for. I mean, besides like America. Uh, But no, I feel sorry for Frank Bruni. I don't really feel sorry for Frank Bruni, but because I like Frank Bruni and I enjoy his column in The New York Times. I think he's a good writer. He has interesting things to say. But yesterday he broke the cardinal rule of 2016 political coverage, which was he predicted what was going to happen. And so he did this column basically saying that Ted Cruz was going to kind of roll over, uh, that he was going to implicitly, if not explicitly, endorse Donald Trump after all the bad blood between them, all the horrible things that Donald Trump had said about Ted Cruz's wife and his father and about Ted Cruz himself, that Ted Cruz was going to go up there and violate some basic you know, principle of, uh, of personal integrity by endorsing Donald Trump. And then that didn't happen. <laughs> you should never do that. Never do that during this, certainly not during this convention week and probably not from now until November. Never say you know what's going to happen over the next 24 hours. Accept that. And here's my idea for like Nate Silver in 538. The one thing that you do know is that in the next 24 hours, something really weird and unprecedented is going to happen. You just don't know what it is. But see, if I were Nate Silver, I would just tweet that every day. There's an 89% chance that something really weird and unprecedented will happen in the presidential campaign in the next 24 hours. And he'd never be wrong. I mean, name me a day where that wasn't the case going back to, say, last November. It's always true. So just don't get specific. That's the key. Um, And also never stop looking at your uh, computer monitor and or your television screen because just things happen all the time. I was like, I don't know, like I turned away for 30 minutes today and Ted Cruz announced that he was not Donald Trump's servile little puppy. I don't want 30 minutes to go by without my knowing that. I want to know right away that Ted Cruz is explicitly not going to be Donald Trump's servile little puppy. And by the way, I think we know now what Ted Cruz's safe word is. All right. So we're going to talk very specifically and a little bit more seriously about some of the things that have happened at the Republican National Convention and towards the end of the show, too. I know you probably have your own pent up perceptions 
We're going to try to leave some time, more time than we usually leave, because we're pretty terrible about it most of the time. We're going to try to leave some time for you to call in. Uh, But that is still to come. Uh, Right now, we're going to talk to David Swerdlick, assistant editor at The Washington Post, Opinions, Outlook, and Post Everything. Uh, And first of all, welcome back to our show. Yeah, hey, thanks, Colin. Thanks for having me. So, um, you know, not to do a protracted autopsy on this Ted Cruz thing, but it's still a bit of a mystery to me. I mean, usually they don't let you out on stage if they don't know what you're going to do. I mean, that's just sort of a fundamental precept of convention management, especially if there's been bad blood between the two of you. Does anybody know? I mean, I guess... You know, Cruz did say that he told the Trump people he wasn't going to endorse. Yeah, and here's the thing, uh, Colin. I think this works on two tracks. There's the Ted Cruz-specific track, which is this. Look, he sort of brokered with the campaign this idea. And I don't have all the reporting, but he he worked on this idea that, look, I'm not going to endorse, but I'm going to come speak. And there was, you know, some sort of, you know, some detente worked out. But as you said, you've got to know what's happening in those last 24 hours. Uh, two days ago, he had the welcome event off-site in Cleveland, but off-site for his supporters to, quote-unquote, thank his supporters. Last night, he gave the speech that people are now hashtagging the Ted Wedding, obvious uh, Game of Thrones reference. <laughs> and then today, he gave a fiery speech to the Texas delegation explaining why he didn't endorse. I was in the hall last night in the Quicken Loans Arena last night in the press area, and at the point when Cruz turned and walked away from the podium and it was 100% clear that he wasn't endorsing, that huge boo went up and it was like this moment where, as you were pointing out, you just can't predict it. But the other track, Colin, that I think this is on is the Trump track, which is this. He's never run for office before, and his team and his family have not seen all the twists and turns in the road. You learn to run for president when you run for senator or governor. You learn to run for senator or governor when you run for city council or state legislature. If you've never run for office before, you cannot see all these twists and turns in the road coming at you. And I think that's happened to the uh, Trump campaign a couple of times this week. Ted Wedding the Melania Trump plagiarism of Michelle Obama. Uh, It's been a, look, Trump will survive. Trump will come out of the convention and regroup, but it's been not a great week for them. I mean, I think there's a third track. There's a way that we can think about this that, um, well, I just want to back up and say, in general, when these things happen, um, they they do hurt candidates. They have hurt campaigns in the past. Miscalculations, uh, particularly maybe being too aggressive in the denunciation of your opponent. I think about the uh, Ann Richards nomination speech in 1988, where she just crucified George H.W. Bush. Uh, She did that poor George speech. And I actually thought it it worked against the against the, uh, her interest and in favor of George H.W. Bush. But one, yeah. th- one thing about Donald Trump is one of the things that he is familiar with, I mean, you correctly say he's not really that familiar with campaigns, but he's very familiar with the World Wrestling Federation or whatever it's, WWE, right, where right. there's heroes and there's villains and there's spectacle and there's plot. There's a lot of plot. And it doesn't even matter that much from week to week whether Vince McMahon is a hero or a villain or any of the wrestlers are heroes or villains, as long as you've got a lot of them and a lot going on. And this convention has a little bit of the look and feel of that, David. Yeah, no, I think you're right, Colin. Uh, I agree with you, by the way, about Ann Richards, the silver foot in the mouth right. uh, comment. That redounded more to the benefit of Bush, ultimately. You're totally right about that. Um, 
Yeah, no, Trump, he, look, he's been in the public eye for 40 years, so he does know how to play this game on a certain level. And, and I think your, 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 obvious, uh, your observation is correct that, uh, you know, some villains and some maybe anti-heroes have emerged in this convention. But I do strongly think that one thing that may ha- – I don't know this for sure, but I think one thing that may have been overlooked by Team Trump is, look, they dispatched handily – 17 candidates, but Cruz was the one guy who hung in there till the very end, who was the only guy who kind of laid a glove on Trump, won several states, outmaneuvered him in some uh, delegate contests after the fact. So, yes, maybe the other 16 candidates were pushovers, but I'm not sure why they would have, if they did, expect Cruz to be a pushover. Cruz is the guy who came into this, who beat David Dewhurst in Texas, the multi-millionaire lieutenant governor of Texas, who no one thought Cruz could beat. Cruz beat him in the Texas Republican primary for Senate in 2012. Then Cruz came into the Senate, bucked his own leadership immediately, and and basically said, if senators won't go with me, I will get my support on the other side of the hill from the House, and we will try a government shutdown. His first year as a backbencher freshman senator. So why would people think that now he would play go-along to get along? I don't know. You know, David, one of the other mysteries of this campaign and of this political season has been the way the Republicans didn't really seem to embrace the lesson that they've said really after the last two cycles that they had learned, which is that they have to have a bigger tent, be more open, more diverse, that the demographics of voting in the United States are changing. If you couldn't think of a better reason to change than that, then that's a really good reason that you have to reach more people. And this campaign hasn't really seemed to work this way. But then the convention, which usually maybe the fact that it's a little bit early this year, they didn't have as much time to prepare. But this is your chance to script things out and to get the message out much more clearly, the message that you really want, as opposed to people going off script and stumbling over the course of a campaign. But you've got things like, you know, uh, U.S. Congressman Stephen King going on the Chris Hayes show and saying that non-whites haven't contributed meaningfully to to civilization. I mean, that's not part of the scripted part of the convention, but it's the kind of outlier that you really want to control and and maybe repudiate. You've got a platform that seems aggressively non-inclusive. It's it's, uh, certainly, if there's a log cabin Republican who can look at that thing without throwing up. I, I, I can't imagine right. who that person is. It just seems like that was the thing that they needed to do, and they're not doing it. No, that's right, Colin. Um, after 2012, uh, as your listeners know, there was the much-talked-about, much-vaunted Republican RNC, quote-unquote, autopsy report, where the main takeaways were uh, the Republican Party has to be more inclusive and reach out to uh the LGBT community, or at least become less antithetical to the interests of the LGBT community, broaden the tent to include black and Latino and Asian American voters, and uh, to reach out to millennials. I would say, and I think most people would say, that not only have they not executed on that from 2012 till now, in recent months, they've been regressing and going backwards, and they're in a worse position on that front. There are uh, black conservatives here and Latino conservatives here. I've actually spent some time with uh, conservatives of color in Cleveland the last couple of days. People, I think, have sort of a, we're just going to have to live through this. We're just going to have to, uh, you know, get through to the, to the other side. There's a dispiritedness in general to a degree in Cleveland, and that includes um, conservatives of color. Um, you know, the other thing that I, I would say on this is that they, the Trump campaign, again, to me, this is the clearest cut of all, Colin. 
they are missing the low-hanging fruit. Last weekend in Cincinnati, the NAACP convened, and Donald Trump was invited to speak at the NAACP convention, and he declined. Look, he is polling at 0% in last week's Marist poll in Pennsylvania and in Ohio among black voters. 0%. Now, his campaign knows that he's not going to get the majority of black voters. His campaign knows there's not going to, they're not going to get 15% of black voters. But if you want your percentage of black voters in the Marist poll, and granted it's within the margin of error, to go from 0 to 1%, you've got to show up at the NAACP. That's, that's low-hanging fruit. Because you go to the convention and you say, look, I know that I'm not going to win the majority of the black vote, but if, if I'm elected president, I'm going to be the president of everybody. I'm going to be the president of both the people that supported me and the people that didn't support me. You spend an hour in Cincinnati with the NAACP, maybe people are receptive, maybe you're not, but that's how you demonstrate to the country broadly that you're a leader. If you can't do that, then all of Trump's pronouncements that the blacks like him, the Hispanics like him, the women like him, you know, the quote-unquote, the poorly educated like him, it, it, it rings hollow. Right. And it is, you know, I remember in 1992 in Houston um, seeing Condoleezza Rice for the first time. I think she was brought in from Stanford yes. at that point to speak. And I, I thought, wow, there's a very telegenic, articulate, kind of cool-looking person, you know, <laughs> who right. could be really the embodiment uh, of maybe a new Republican message about who they are. This time we've got, like, David Clark, the scariest sheriff. I mean, he just like a Batman villain, Wisconsin sheriff. And, and, and another speaker, all two speakers kind of putting down Black Lives Matter, which yes. seems to play very well with the people in the funny hats sitting out there in the audience. But once again, you wonder whether it's just losing them votes as opposed to even breaking even no i think it is um look people can disagree on issues they can disagree about foreign policy about health care about uh, the size and role of government but voters are also going to vote in fact maybe first they're going to vote on whether they feel like a candidate sincerely has their interests and and concerns at heart and whether a candidate respects them and when a campaign and its surrogates, including its surrogates of color, uh, kind of give this um, condescending, down-talking message that you just described. It does. It, it sort of closes the door to otherwise messaging to uh, communities of color. Here's the irony thing about the the the, uh, the Black Lives Matter criticism coming from Sheriff Clark, coming from some others. Um, in that speech that Trump gave last week that everyone talked about, the speech where he declared himself the law and order candidate, a quote that didn't get as much play, Colin, was later on, it was just days after the, um, the, the Dallas police massacre, it was days after Philando Castile in uh, Minnesota, days after Alton uh, Sterling in Baton Rouge, Trump said, that I'm reading a direct quote, if he's elected, quote, everyone will be protected equally and treated justly without prejudice, unquote. Well, guess what, Donald Trump? That is all that Black Lives Matter's top line ask is. Of course, Black Lives Matter has ties to, you know, left wing movements and there's different factions in different cities. But their top line ask from coast to coast is that everyone will be pr protected equally and treated justly without prejudice. Trump has not, he's at moments said things like that, but in, made no effort to follow up on it, to capitalize on it, or to make people feel like he's sincere about it. And that, that if he winds up losing this race, I mean, look, he, he could win. 
But if he winds up losing this race, those will be lost opportunities that 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 were you know shouldn't have been lost. David Swerdlick, uh, so great to talk to you once again, assistant editor at the Washington Post Opinions, Outlook, and Post Everything. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. We're going to take a break here. As we go into the break, I'm going to tell you that our, our musical selection here uh, is from Third Eye Blind, who also created some news this week by essentially musically trolling one of the parties at the convention. They are, this did not get Third Eye Blind off John Dankowski's no-fly list, but maybe, maybe it helped them a little bit. Um, by the way, and, and write in to tell us if you like this idea, whether you would support this idea. But Tucker and I, Tucker Ives and I have this idea that we'd like to launch a podcast that would be hosted by John Dankowski that would just be called Songs I Hate. Um, and we would play Third Eye Blind, They Might Be Giants, Bare Naked Ladies, The Goo Goo Dolls, Matchbox 20, Maroon 5, Fahrenheit 451, any group with a number in its name probably. And he would just, with each one, explain why he hated them. And maybe even how much he hated them relative to how much he hated the other ones. Um, I feel like that could take off. All right, so email me if you would support such a podcast, colin at wnpr.org. Well, we wanted to, okay, that was a little doomy gloomy, that last, that first segment. But we wanted to also talk to somebody, a Republican, uh, who's out there uh, and who's partaking uh, of all the things that you can partake in uh, when you go to a convention. So Themis Claritus, Republican minority leader at the Connecticut House of Representatives and a delegate uh, at the Republican National Convention and a member of the Platform Committee, is joining us now. Oh, welcome back to our airwaves, Themis Claritus. Hi, Colin. How are you? Uh, we're just fine. And I know you got out there late uh, because uh, of a family issue, and I hope your dad is uh, doing better, and we certainly yes, send him you. our best wishes. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, um, I arrived very early this morning, so I'm looking forward to the day. So, you know, you've you walked a complicated line here in Connecticut. Connecticut's politics and Connecticut's Republican politics are probably a little bit different than the baseline politics that you're going to be seeing over the next couple of days out in Cleveland or that you've been watching uh, on television. And I know even in previous iterations of the platform committee, you know, I mean, you've got a different view of, say, LGBTQ rights and issues from what's in the platform. So so how, how are you dealing with it? Or does it just not matter? I mean, for some people, will say, well, when I get back to Connecticut, who cares? Nobody knows what's on the platform anyway. Well, you had mentioned earlier that I was on the platform committee this convention, but I, I was not. It was the last, last convention. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I would have been able to handle sitting there for this one. Um, <laughs> listen, I, I, this is how I feel about it. There are plenty of things both of our parties believe in that we don't necessarily, whether you be a Democrat or Republican. Mm. I almost feel as if these platforms have become almost obsolete because we only focus on them when we're doing a convention. Mm -hmm. And then we all go home to our various states and every state has a different iteration of what that platform means or what their definition of a Connecticut Republican or an Idaho Republican or a Florida Republican and so on is. I certainly don't agree with many of the parts of that of our platform. Usually it's social issues we disagree on. I, it concerns me, but I also understand sitting on the platform committee four years ago, you sit in this room and even though you know you come from 
a state like Connecticut, where a Connecticut Republican or a Northeastern Republican, for that matter, is much more moderate on social issues. It, it is, it's a little bit of a slap in the face when you hear the conversations in the rest of the room. Um, one of the things that's going to be different for you this year is even just the composition of the Connecticut delegation. Obviously, Donald Trump won the state, so that may mean you know somebody like you, a longtime uh, Connecticut elected official, will be in the delegation. But also, there's probably a lot of people in the delegation that you haven't met before or maybe didn't meet until the last two or three weeks. So who you, who's out there this time? Well, there are a handful of legislators. There's, um, of course, John Fry, who's our national committee man and state representative. There's several of my House Republican caucus, Rosa Rabindus, Tony D'Amelio, Kara Pavlock, and then Senator McLaughlin. And so that's interesting. And then there are people, as you said, that are from different areas, not just politics. And, and I think that that's a good thing. I think it's nice that we can mix things up and have people from different walks of life people that are, are very involved politically and then people that aren't so involved politically. Um, do you think it'll make a different campaign, make for a different campaign in Connecticut? I mean, I, I don't know what the numbers tell you uh, about Trump winning the state. I don't know what uh, the numbers uh, ta- say about down ticket races. I noticed that Ted Cruz was very concerned about down ticket races uh, last night in his speech. Um, but obviously, you guys have to run a campaign in Connecticut. Some of it will be based on on some of the language and imagery that comes out of this convention. Some of it, as you say, will be very specific uh, to Connecticut. Uh, but how do you think what you're seeing this week will affect what you do in Connecticut? Well, I don't think it affects what we do in Connecticut very much, and here's why. What I, the way we define ourselves in Connecticut as Connecticut Republicans is different than different parts of the state. Sometimes it's similar, sometimes it's not. So we run on our record. I don't have to say I believe a Connecticut Republican is a big tent party because it actually is, because of the way we voted, because of the way that we've, um, the comments we made. I don't have to say a Connecticut Republican is um, understanding of everybody's lifestyle and believes that we we accept everybody because we've shown that we that's our voting record. So we're going to run a campaign based on two things really: um, the fact that Governor Malloy's record is abysmal, abysmal, and the Democrats in the House and the Senate have not told him no. Mm-hmm. I mean, we look at we look at I have to hear House and Senate Democrats oftentimes. Uh, criticize the governor and say, you know, he's bad in this regard, or we don't like what he did in that regard, yet they don't stop him. This isn't a dictatorship. We have full branches of government, and the governor, although how much he, he would like to do it, can't do almost anything without the House and Senate going along. And the one or two times they've said no, it hasn't been the important time. And so that's how we're running a campaign. We're running a campaign based on our record, based on our principles, based on our policy. We're running a record saying we've not only have we said we don't like what you're doing, but we've given you example after example after example, budget after budget after budget as to how we would do it. And that's how we run a campaign. It's this week is nice and it's interesting and it's fun, but we don't take back everything they say wrote because that's not how we operate. 
Um, you just got out there uh, and you've been through some stuff at home and you're uh, tired. I don't know whether you're going to want to go to any of the fabulous uh, parties that uh, take place at conventions. But conventions can be fun. And with Paul Manafort uh, as the campaign manager and Justin Clark as deputy political director, Connecticut people can probably get into a lot of that kind of stuff. But on a more substantive level, what do you want to do out there? You're only out there for two days. Are you do you want FaceTime with certain national officials? Do you want do you want to spend some time with the Connecticut delegation figuring out what's going to happen over the next two years? Do you want to set yourself up for a gubernatorial run uh, two years from now? Uh, what's on your mind while you're out in Cleveland, Themis Claritas? Well, since I'm only out here until tomorrow, what I will do is certainly spend time with my delegation. We have an, an early dinner planned in a few hours at the Botanical Gardens, and then we'll head over to the convention. And then, you know, we'll do interviews with some people from in-state, some people from out-of-state. I'll talk to some national people, um, and I'll just you know, I'm here to enjoy what's going on and, and learn what I can learn and meet people and um, be part of this great team we have in Connecticut. Uh, are you planning to run for governor in 2018? <laughs> I'm House Republican leader, and my one and only goal right now is to get a majority in the House this, this November. All right. We're going to have scientists analyze the laugh you did uh, when I uh, asked you that. I think we can actually <laughs> learn. See, there's another laugh. All right, Themis, uh, I'm going to let you go because I know you got a lot on your plate there. Thanks for making time for us today. Thank you, Colin, as always. All right. So we're also going to talk to uh, a reporter who's also uh, boots on the ground there, somebody that we're lucky enough to have uh, through uh, John Dankosky, although we we might have just lost her because we played the Third Eye Blind song. Uh, But uh, joining us now from WBUR uh, is reporter Shannon Dooling, uh, who has been reporting from uh, out in Cleveland. She's joining us through the miracle of Skype. Uh, Hello, Shannon Dooling. Hi, Colin. So one question I wanted to ask you, I know as this campaign has unfolded, you, like me, have been at actual Trump rallies. I think you've been to more of them than I have. I've only been to one. Uh, So those are rallies where anybody can show up. You don't need delegate credentials. You don't need anything. You just need to to walk in and make a lot of noise. How does uh, what's happening there at the Quicken Loan Center resemble or not resemble what you saw on the campaign trail heading to Cleveland? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, so, so one rally in Nashville, New Hampshire, kind of stands out in my my mind. Um, you know, it kind of felt to me like this combination of, of sort of equal parts reality TV, uh, part game show, part stand up comic shtick, and 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 you know, everyone was just sort of eagerly waiting for Trump to take the stage, uh, and he was cracking jokes, and the crowd was just really engaged and, and they loved it. Um, and, and it was kind of like waiting for a rock concert to begin. And, and, and so that, that sentiment, that feeling in the air, that excitement is, is definitely tangible here. Um, you know, there, there's a bit more of an agenda here, a, a bit more of a schedule. Um, but within that schedule, there's certainly, as we've seen <laughs> every night, there's certainly um, plenty of room for, uh, for sort of real time uh, chaos and sort of gaffes to be taking place. Um, but, it, but it's a lot of the same sort of, uh, you know, folks, that you might expect it at some of those rallies. Um, so, so definitely some similarities. And I think the structure, uh, albeit a, a sort of fluid and, and flexible structure, uh, is is a little more tangible than in, at the rallies through the, throughout the primary. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I've, I think this is, is this your first national political convention? I should say it is. Yeah. yeah and I, I, it seems I picked a, a good one well, <laughs> to, to, to start covering. It's not a one by which you could necessarily judge any others that you will ever go to. Uh, and I mean, I, one thing that I can say is having 
covered a lot of them, is mm-hmm. I think one way that this would strike me as different were I there is is what you're talking about right now, which is that typically there's sort of a, a permanent political government in each party so that, you know, each the, the state delegations year to year, they don't vary that much. I mean, they vary to the extent that, say, yeah, if McCain uh, wins uh, a state or Romney wins a state or Bush wins a state, obviously the people who control that campaign can kind of seat a lot of the delegates and, and decide who's going. But this has been really different because, yeah, a lot of the people that you I'm looking watching on television, the people out on the floor and what I've read about the coverage, too, suggests that the people out on the floor, they were just sort of people who were, you know, dog groomers one day and then uh-huh. Trump supporters and then got a call saying, yeah, come to Cleveland. You're a delegate. So they're they're as new to this as you are. A lot of first-time convention goers, a lot of first-time delegates. I've been talking to a lot of New England delegates, and, um, and and I've been hearing that sort of sentiment over and over again. This is so much fun. I, I you know, it's it's way more exciting than I may have expected. Uh, and, and you know, I, I should say one moment that sort of epitomized that to me was, uh, you know, while I was on the floor uh, earlier this week when when. Willie Robertson, one of the stars of the reality TV show uh, Duck Dynasty, uh, took to the podium. And the delegate I was interviewing, uh, she literally stopped mid-sentence and turned to take a picture of the stage uh, of Willie Robertson as he took the stage. And she was just giddy. She she just was so excited. And, and that, to me, was a moment where I realized that, that the Trump campaign really knows what makes its supporters tick. Um, you know, a lot of political observers uh, have been commenting on the absence of, of former presidents, you know, big name Republicans uh, kind of missing from the speaking schedule. But but in some ways, Trump knows what what his most ardent supporters want to hear. Uh, and, and he's certainly been been giving a lot of that to them here in Cleveland. Although, you know, that points up a, a, a confusing issue, which is uh, you may have heard a little bit of the interview I did with Themis Claritus. She's a very prominent Connecticut mm-hmm. Republican, and she's one of the more sort of typical delegates that, that's there in the Connecticut delegation. And I'm sure as you, you Shannon, look at these other New England delegations, you probably see a few of those, you know, people who, who would be at almost any convention. And New England Republicans tend to be a little bit different from some of the Republicans in other places. And, and uh, on the other hand, probably the bulk of these delegations Delegations are hand-picked Trump delegates. They're not necessarily freaking out over the platform, I would assume. Or, I mean, there's, it's a little unsettling to watch a convention where the crowd is chanting, lock her up, lock her up, talking <laughs> about imprisoning your actual political opposition. Um, but I'm assuming this plays pretty well with the kind of people who've wound up in these New England delegations. Yeah, yeah, it's it seems to be, um, you know, it, it's it's this weird mix of, you know, in terms of the, the speaking agenda and, and sort of the, the flavor that each of these nights has taken on. You know, there, there are actors um, there, are you know, the UFC executive who, who took this to the stage earlier this week, uh, members of Trump's family as children. Um, they're all speaking. And, and then, you know, you have sprinkled throughout. You have Newt Gingrich, Paul Ryan, of course, um, Ted Cruz making making a splash last night. So it's sort of been this fusion of, of fantasy and reality in some ways. Um, so, so, so very much made for TV. So for his sort of core base, you know, those, those folks that, that um, are, are craving that kind of reality TV sort of production style convention, um, you know, sort of, like I said, sprinkled in with, with these sort of um, these, these more establishment uh, uh, style voices. I can tell you from experience that as the week goes on and you're more sleep deprived, your ability to distinguish fantasy from reality will actually deteriorate substantially. Uh, 
So, uh, so how, however it sure. seems now, it's prepared for it to be uh, fully blurred tomorrow. So I guess the other question that sort of, you know, would be rippling through the people that you're talking to right now is, is this some kind of turning point? I mean, will there in, in four years be another convention like this one or will the party find some way to revert and go back to a more recognizable form of itself? Are we seeing history in the making in the sense that there's this fundamental change that can never be unmade or is this a blip an anomaly you know i I think that very much depends on on who you're speaking with Mm -hmm. um there's certainly regardless there's certainly uh just a a palpable feeling that that something historic is happening right now uh you know of of course regardless of the outcome come november this convention this candidate uh this republican party uh is is really unprecedented and, and it's fascinating to watch this all play out but um, you know, I think uh, that that'll in some ways be dictated by the by the outcome in November. I, I think, um, you know, that's to be determined. I'm sure some of the sort of more moderate kind of uh, traditional sort of Yankee Republicans are, are here in the name of unity, in the name of party unity. Um, I, I caught up with uh, former Massachusetts Senator Scott Brown yesterday and, and you know, he said, you know, it's it's all about uh, the future of the Republican Party for me now. And, and I've heard that from a lot of folks who maybe aren't necessarily, um, you know, riding the Trump train at this point, but but they're here and, and they're trying to take back the White House um, and, and that resounding sort of no more, you know, we, we don't want four more years of Barack Obama with Hillary Clinton. So if the party can unite around anything, it's it's um, it's just the, the spirit of getting a Republican back in the White House, it seems at this point. All right. Shannon Dooling from WBUR. Great to talk to you. Get a minimum of four hours of sleep and um, <laughs> eat crudités. Like make sure you eat vegetables. That's what yeah. I learned. <laughs> We're working on it. Thanks for having me. Colin. I learned that the hard way in 1980. All right. So, boy, I just sounded old when I said that. Uh, All right. So we're going to just open the phones uh, here in the uh, final segment, whether you're um, a Trumpling or an anti-Trumpling. I just made up that word, Trumpling. I kind of like it. It's like a dumpling. Uh, anyway, whether if you're watching the convention and having very profound reactions to it, I'll, I'll set up some questions, some basic questions when we come back. But you probably have your own things you want to say. And it would be nice if you could get them off your chest. Stop yelling them at the TV screen. Yell, yell them at the radio instead. 860-275-7266. You can call right now and get on the board. Get to the head of the line. 860-275-7266. The big one to see what happened. We give them money, but are they grateful? No, they're spiteful and they're hateful. They don't respect us, so let's surprise them. We'll drop the big one pulverize them. The age is crowded. All right, it's time to say some thank yous. Betsy Kaplan produced the, this year's show today, and I think Leah Myers, our great intern, is on the phones. By the way, the phones are 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You can also tweet at our great tweet master, Greg Hill, at WNPR Colin. Jonathan McPants uh, is uh, on the board right now, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Kid Rock. Um, did I miss anybody? I think that's everybody. All right. So um, tomorrow on the show, let me just quickly, I've, I've probably made a huge mistake with tomorrow's show, one that I will wind up deeply regretting in one way or another. But what we did, you know, we have this Friday panel. It's called The Nose. It's a cultural roundtable. Three people who are good talkers with interesting ideas. They're funny. They're entertaining. They're charming. Um, we have them come in. We, we pick some topics to talk about. So 
with the new Ghostbusters movie out, the Ghostbusters reboot, we just we, we decided what we would do would be we would invite all the people who are regularly on the nose who do not have Y chromosomes, right? So we just had uh, all the women, uh, and so it turned out eight of them, eight of them could fit it into their busy lives to go see the Ghostbusters movie and then come in and talk about it. So we're going to do that tomorrow. I don't really know. Well, I, I sort of have a plan for how to get eight different voices on the air, but I don't know if it'll work. And we won't only talk about the Ghostbusters movie, although there's been quite a bit going on with uh, the way that Leslie Jones has been uh, treat, treated on Twitter. Uh, there's uh, some side stories that will flesh things out, but we probably will also talk about one or two other topics. But they'll all be related to you know, double X, basically, double X chromosomes, I mean. So anyway, that's the plan for tomorrow. Right now, the plan is for you to call in 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. And you may also tweet at us, at WNPR Colin. And I'll just put out one idea, and I'm sure some others will come up. One thing that I've been thinking about, I, I am a little chilled by these lock her up chants. They started on Monday night. They've kept going. Um, and I mean, basically, this is kind of not the American way where you want to imprison the political opposition. There are lots of countries where that does happen, but it does. It's sort of not how you anchor your campaign with the idea that rather than going through all those tedious and messy debates and, you know, then letting people vote, uh, you just lock up the person that you're running against. And then it's kind of accelerated beyond that, where, in fact, a supporter of Donald Trump, a guy who I might add spoke at the Hartford Trump rally. He's a um, uh, he's from New Hampshire. He's a Trump delegate. He's also, I think, the co-chair of the advisory committee to the Trump campaign on veterans affairs. He, in a radio interview, said that um, he thought that Hillary Clinton should be uh, put in, the, in a firing squad line and shot. Um, and I mean... <laughs> And the Trump campaign, their response to this was priceless. They said uh, that they are incredibly grateful for his support, but they disagree with that comment, which somehow or other feels less than a wholesale repudiation. And one of the things that I was trying to get at or in the first segment, too, is sometimes when you go too negative on your opponent, like suggesting you should be able to imprison them or shoot them, which is kind of unprecedented here. But even even the Ann Richards speech where, yeah, she, she said, poor George, he was born with a silver foot in his mouth. And she, I think she might have been the first person ever to t- use that line about being born on second base and having thought he'd hit a double. But it, it backfired and they it, it didn't help them. It helped George H.W. Bush. And ordinarily, there's a, a, a poll bounce that you get out of uh, your convention. You know, your poll numbers go up the following week. And I'm wondering with this convention whether, whether that's going to happen. Usually you have this incredible chance to make your case uh, and to put together the most scripted uh, and theatrically pleasant uh, version of yourself that you can. And I'm, I'm, I, I wonder whether the, the Trump poll numbers go up, uh, but we'll see. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's go to um, in Woodstock, John. Hi, John. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. How are you? Oh, I'm reasonably okay. Thanks for caring. That's great. Um, so, uh, what, something I posted on Facebook of all places the other day was, you know, I wish that I have a lot of I have a lot of folks that are friends of mine, folks that I ran against, and folks that you know are parents of of of, uh, of kids that are friends of my kids who are Republicans in my town. It's a larger Republican town, and I would really like them to kind of stand up and kind of say, hey, we're not affiliated with 
the kind of rhetoric, the kind of um, platform that's coming out of the Republican Party right now. And I, I feel like there's a real fear among them. I don't know what, what it means anymore to be a Republican for them. And I'm not even sure. I think you could say the same thing of Democrats after, after the Sanders campaign. And I really, I really wonder what is in people's minds when they, they join a political party and they decide to stay in a political party at this point, because it does feel like something different is happening. And whether we have a third party option or not, I'm just, I'm just curious as to, you know, what is going through people's minds at this point? I think it's a great question, first of all. And, and what I will say about this is, I mean, I, I have a better Republican friend these days. I've had, had lots of Republican friends in the past. This is not my first, but I'm probably closer to a Republican person right now than I've been in a long time and maybe ever. And I have had a chance to see what his thinking has been like. And it's been very hard. It's been a very difficult process. This is not something uh, I'm not going to say who this is. But <laughs> the, the Trump candidacy isn't something that he's particularly comfortable with. And he's not even comfortable watching other people he knows who are Republicans who are at least uh, pretending to embrace some of this. And and I think it's hard. I think, you know, it's you're never a perfect you're rarely going to be a perfect fit with whatever whatever party you choose. There are always going to be some places where you diverge or you're not too crazy about the standard bearer. But this is this is unusual and it's hard. And I think it's hard for New England Republicans um, and it may be hard for uh, New England Democrats uh, come come next week. Um, I think for the people who wind up being players in this world, either as elected officials or the kind of people who hold important backroom positions, one of the things that they have to think about is, can I, how can I, in fact, influence anything? How can I be a player? How can I have any impact on my party? And by staying home, you don't, right? Ultimately, you have to make a decision. Like, maybe I'm not too crazy about all this Trump stuff, but if I don't go and if I don't play, if I don't take a job, if I don't get on a committee, if I don't run for office, uh, I can't have any impact whatsoever, including on some of the issues that I do care about. So, um you know, I think that affects it. I think it materially affects how people approach those questions. But those are really good questions, John. And thanks for calling. Here's Kara in Stanford. Hi, Kara. Hi, I'm Karen, but that's okay. Oh, I'm on the parkway. I'm really sorry to just speaking. But when you ask that question about what it is that I'm thinking when I'm watching the Republican convention, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm back watching a brown shirt. I have never in my life, and I have older than you are, seen a convention where people are demanding to jail the opponent, the person who's going to be running for the other party. It feels like breach. It feels like somewhere else, but it's not the country that I know. Uh, I don't know. You know, I just, I don't, I can't condone it. It upsets me terribly. And, you know, I just, I want them to yeah, I think the, the thinking. Yeah, the thinking will come later. I'm going to pop you on hold because your phone is a little uh, hard to hear. Um, but yeah, I, I you know actually there was a Republican commentator on on MSNBC, and I feel like there are all these Republican um, strategists who are kind of named Stephen Schmidt. I think that might be his name, but there's like a Stuart Stevens and a, I don't know. There's a lot of them. I can't tell them apart. I'm going to say it was Stephen Schmidt who called this. Now, he's a Republican, mind you, banana Republicanism, which I, I thought was about right. I mean, it, this is the kind of behavior you associate with a much less stable 
form of government where, in fact, you can, I mean, th- what that's called when you lock up the pe- person from the other party who poses the greatest threat to you, that's called having a political prisoner, you know, and then you get kind of involved with the Amnesty International and stuff like that. So, yeah, it is a little, little weird uh, listening to those chants. All right, here's Ted in Quag, New York. I don't know. Ted, where are you calling from? Oh, well, you know what? He's not calling at all, so it doesn't matter. I was looking forward to learning how to pronounce the name of the place that he's from. Here's Jay in Manchester, an easier place to pronounce. Hi. Uh, I wanted to say that the best thing about this convention was that both sides seems to have to learn from uh, 1968, and we didn't have a riot or, or uh, violence from either the police force or, or very much from the demonstrators. And I was afraid we were headed for that. And the other wish I have is that next... Oops, sorry, 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 sorry. sorry. I just moved the cursor in the wrong way. Uh, I'm very sorry. That was my fault. I knocked him off the line there. So, um, but let me just say something about that. Yeah, I think, in fact, that's been a good thing, that maybe some of the extremities and some of the extreme behavior inside the convention hall uh, has, I don't know, maybe it drained some of the energy out of the streets uh, because, yeah, I think a lot of people were worried going in here. If you think about what you were worried about a week ago, and it did involve uh, open carry laws uh, and the, the notion that people might be showing up there with actual you know, firearms uh, out in the streets and, and that there would be clashes. And so far, as far as I can tell, unless I've missed something, there's been a number close to zero of that. And that was that's that's a very gratifying fact. So, you know, as much as we might be somewhat concerned by some of the things we're hearing inside the hall, there's good news outside. Now, nobody's getting hurt. Uh, sometimes that's the most that you can hope for. Uh, here's uh, David in Chester. Hi, David. Yes. I have a theory, probably wrong, and I'm a, I believe in the two-party system. I'm an old man. I wait, go way back to Landon and then Wilkie, fine Republicans, I felt, opposing Roosevelt. Now, what's happened here is that when Barack Obama was elected, one of the most powerful men in the Senate, that fellow from Kentucky, said that our first uh, priority is to make this a one-term president. He must have said, our first priority is to govern the country, and our second priority is that. But he didn't say that. Mm-hmm. And following that first priority, the Republicans have blocked everything that could be blocked, and we have seven and a half years of nothing. And cleverly, they have blamed this on Barack Obama. And because there seems to be nothing happened, this, forgive me here, this monster arises who is going to, going to destroy the Republican Party. And that's my idea of the history of what's going on and how this party, I hope, will be reconstituted after whether Trump is elected or defeated. That's my uh, thought. All right. Thanks very much for your call, David. Yeah. And just, you know, I mean, to that that point of obstructionism, and I think it was Mitch McConnell, right, who said that the first time uh, that their primary goal was to make Barack Obama a one term president that turned out not to work out very well. And, yeah, we're still sitting there. uh, I just I was scrolling through a site today that uh, told me what day it was in the Merrick Garland nomination process. Uh, And, I mean, he's the guy who's been sort of sitting there on the back burner as a potential Supreme Court nominee that for some reason or other they won't consider. Well, we know why they won't consider. And But to David's point that the Republican Party will be reconstituted after this, I think 
I'm going to follow the Frank Bruni rule, the rule I made for Frank Bruni at the beginning of this, to say and say nobody has any idea what's going to happen after this. First of all, it's all utterly conditional on whether Trump wins or loses. Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, even if we knew what the outcome was going to be, even if we knew which one this was going to be, um, we wouldn't know everything that was going to happen. We wouldn't know whether the Republican Party will substantially change itself. It seemed as though last night, Ted Cruz was rolling the dice, right? He was betting that Trump is not going to be elected uh, and that, the, that he is now setting the table for a 2020 run, one where he can say, I told you so, I told you not to buy into that, and look what happened. Uh, he, he's even dangled the notion that if Trump does win, he would run a primary uh, in 2020. Uh, and, and I can see that happening, too. I can, I can imagine a scenario where that happens. But I don't think anybody knows how the Republican Party will be reconstituted. I think it's less likely that it will be reconstituted in any of the ways that David would recognize from the past. I mean, it, it seemed as though even this time that the two forces vying for control of the Republican Party were Trumpism, whatever that is, and then a pretty hardline Ted Cruz-style Ken Cuccinelli conservatism, one that's uh, even harder on a lot of the social issues. Um, you know, and, and if there's a third plane of Republicanism, it's probably kind of Paul Ryanism, which is uh, a very, very hard line on fiscal issues, especially the reform of entitlements, the changing uh, of Social Security and Medicare, um, none of which seems to be anywhere in Donald Trump's thinking. So I don't know. To me, those are the three elements of it. But if you're imagining a return to some kind of Jacob Javits Nelson Rockefeller kind of party. I just don't think that's anywhere out there. I mean, probably the closest thing to it was uh, was Jeb Bush uh, this time around. And look what happened to him. Here's uh, here's Ted in Hartford. Hi, Ted. You're on the air. Hi. Sorry for um, the uh, mix hang up before. I'm calling from Quag, New York. It's a town in the Hamptons. Okay. And uh, my question is kind of a question comment is a throwback to the already buried Melania Trump plagiarism story. I'm a journalist, and I've been publishing New York Magazine, El Decor, and I write a column for the Southampton Press out here. And it seems pretty darn clear to me that Melania Trump sourced this, these quotes herself, wrote them down from her speech, from Michelle Obama's speech, and then um, let other people take this in the wind and take the blame for it. And I, I think that... You know what, you know what, Ted, I hate to interrupt you, but we got to go. We are just flat out of time here. But thanks very much for calling in. Uh, we'll be talking probably a little bit more about Melania tomorrow on the nose if we have time and if the story hasn't, as Ted just suggested, totally cooled off. Thanks to everybody who helped out today.